1: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com. We are not going to solve endemic problems unless people who those problems don't directly affect begin to understand that we are all in this together.
0: Hello, welcome to Mr. Clunch on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a presidential episode, but it is not, I would say, like most of my conversations with presidential candidates. Uh, I've known Senator Cory Booker a long time. Uh, you'll, you'll hear that a bit in this podcast, but my grandfather um, was close with him back when he was a New York City councilman, um, just kind of randomly. he My grandfather heard him speak at a synagogue once and just really, really fell for Booker. And so he's. Been in my political consciousness since before I had what I would even understand as a political consciousness. And something about Booker and the campaign he's been running is that there's a deep radicalism to his politics, to his personal politics. People talk about politics all the time, the positions they hold, the ideas they support, um, the tweets they send. But Booker's a guy who he has lived um, for years in a poor community in Newark. So he actually lives in a community that is suffering from the problems he is trying to fix. He's not separated himself um, personally, as many, many people do, certainly most members of Congress do and mayors do. He didn't live in the rich part of town. He's personally a vegan. He has gone on long, real hunger strikes. He has lived his politics with an intensity and an authenticity that I find rare. It's interesting because I don't think Booker is always understood as the most authentic politician, but oftentimes I think his problem is that he's too authentic. He's authentic in a way that people can't quite follow him. Um, What he's doing strikes him as odd or unusual, which is true for people who come from a deep activist mindset. Booker is interesting in the campaign to me for a lot of reasons, but one is that there is almost nobody who garners as universally positive reviews for his debate performances, speeches, et cetera, but has failed to catch on more. He's not even qualified for the debate on January 14th. And I've been thinking a lot about Booker and why this is. And I have a theory, um, and it's a theory I play out in this conversation with him, which is Booker has this politics of radical love. He wants to root um, his politics and his presidency and his presidential campaign in the idea of pushing people towards a different moral foundation. What he wants to push people towards is the same kind of radicalism with which he lives his own life. But but the demands he's willing to make of himself, he's not willing to make of other people. And so when it comes time for that radical love to become confrontational, to become a battle line, to draw distinctions, to say who is on the side of it and who is not, it becomes much softer and he softens the edges of it. And he refuses sometimes to say, to challenge people in the way he challenges himself. And so I think, I think that people listen to him and they like what he's saying, but it is a little bit hard for them to imagine what it means. That in the way that a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren or a Pete Buttigieg or even a Joe Biden, they're very clear. It is very easy to extrapolate from what they do on the campaign trail to the ways in which their presidency would operate or be different. That with Booker he's trying to hold so many conflicting ideas together and he's trying to hold so many people together. You can you can listen to him as he talks. Imagine the person who would be left out or offended or unseen in what he just said and double back to bring them back in. You can listen to him as he talks, do that. But then by the end of that comment, as eloquent and as beautiful and as morally grounded as it was, it could be hard to know what was just said. It can be hard to like find the part to hang on to. And I think you can hear that in this podcast. Um, one thing I was trying to do in this conversation was force a specificity from Booker that I think is there in his thinking, but I think doesn't come out. And something you'll hear is that on the one hand, he gives some answers in here that I think are as interesting and as powerful and as con- and as demanding as anything I've heard from any presidential candidate. But he also gives a lot of answers where he refuses to say what it is that he actually quite means, where he refuses to draw the distinction that help people understand what would make a book or presidency different. How would these beautiful ideals that animate him find their way to the ground level? So I think this is actually an unusually interesting conversation, because it, it, it is really spending its time inside the complexities of Booker's campaign, both the enormous promise he has for a different and holds for a different kind of politics, a more a genuinely radical and confrontational form of politics and why that often ends up muddled and confusing and why he ends up in this almost friend zone of the presidential campaign where people really like him but do not quite fully support him. So I think this was interesting because I think it helped, at least for me, see and explore like the the paradoxes, the contradictions of Cory Booker. And I hope that you find it interesting, too. As always, uh, my email for feedback on this, which I'd be very interested in, uh, but also guest suggestions, whatever, is EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Um, for quick other announcements, although I know this was a bit of a long intro, so I won't spend too much time here, uh, Why We're Polarized, uh, my book is coming out soon. Check it out on pre-order. But also please check out our list of tour spots. A bunch of the tour spots have now sold out, 690 DC. Our green light event in Brooklyn with Tanasi Coates, one of our events in SF, the one with Dave Eggers. So a bunch of these are selling out or are close to have sold out. So please check out WhyWe'rePolarized.com. You can see where we're going, um, or at least the ones have been announced already, and get tickets. I would love to see as many people from the podcast out. But don't wait because we are these are selling out. So if you want to come, um, the time to get a ticket or get your spot is now. That's at WhyWe'rePolarized.com. But here is Senator Cory Booker.
1: Senator Cory Booker, welcome back to the podcast. It's really good to be back on with you, Ezra. Thank you.
0: So I want to start with something that I saw happen on CNN a couple of months ago, which was during one of the climate town halls. Uh, Jorge Ramos asked you, said, you're vegan. Uh, You've made that as a personal choice. And should other people follow you in that? Should other people follow your diet? And I was surprised when your answer was no. Why was your answer no?
1: Well, what would you rather have? Would you rather have... um You know, 50% of the population eat 50% less meat or have 4% of the population go vegan. And the reality is, is corporate animal agriculture is destroying the planet Earth. I've I've visited with families that are suffering deeply. Duplin County, North Carolina, has low-income black communities that I've met with them. They are being uh, really their health, their well-being by these massive CAFOs that put pig feces in these huge lagoons. And by the way, those contract farmers themselves have horrible conditions uh, dictated to them by companies like Smithfield and Tyson. Then these, these CAFOs, i watched them sprayed over spray fields and stuff waft into uh, black and brown communities where the folks are saying things like, we can't open our windows, we can't run our air conditioning, we can't put our clothing on the line. The value of our land has gone down dramatically that, that families have been on since slavery. It's destroying our environment we can't it's not sustainable as the globe moves more toward the Western or the American diet. It's just not sustainable and our food systems must change. but again, the if you talk to farmers in the Midwest who've been on their land since the 1800s, they'll talk I had a Republican farmer named Jones in Western Illinois tell me about what happened when the CAFO, the big corporate consolidated operation move in near. He can't drink from his well anymore, can't fish from his crick. So I definitely think that we cannot sustain this, and it is an environmental issue. But this idea that I'm going to stand up as presidential candidate and tell people what to eat when we as Americans—that's a very personal choice, what we put into our mouths. So no, I'm not telling folks that you need to be on a vegan diet. I think that's a radical—that's a way of getting massive backlash and pushback. But. I am asking people to be much more conscious of the decisions we make and how they affect people and the environment and those around us. So,
0: so on one hand, I, I want to say, like, I find that answer compelling. And something I say on this show a lot is that I'd rather everybody ate half as much meat than we doubled the number of vegans. So on some big macro political level, I see where you're coming from on that. But to me, this is a little bit of something I see in your campaign in microcosm. You live your life by a politics that demands a lot of you you live in a poor area, you're vegan, you really work hard to work with and see and talk to and understand people who are different than you. When I see the way you live out your politics, I find it to be a much more demanding form of politics than I see in most of your colleagues. But then when I hear you asked about what it demands of others, you're a little softer about it. And the reason I focus on the veganism thing is because I believe to be honest, that your answer to that is yes, that you think people should. You're not going to make them, but that you think people should, that you do it because you think it's a good thing and other people should. And so I guess I wanted to push you on this a bit. What does politics demand of us? And isn't it worth it for candidates to do more moral confrontation with some of those questions?
1: So and I don't know how much when you were doing research for this podcast, you listened to my stump speeches around the country, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada, I don't go into deep policy. I stand up and say, this is a moral moment, and I'm running for president, not because I think I'm smarter than the other people running for president. Uh, In fact, most of them I work with. I'm running for president—first of all, I know executives could—their job is not to be the smartest person in the country or in my place back when I was a mayor of a city. It's to surround themselves with people with great ideas. But no, I tell people I'm running for president because I think this is a moral moment. And we must have leaders that can begin to ignite the moral imagination of our country. Leaders, plural, not one, because the only way we've ever gotten big policy done is first to have big shifts in consciousness, in urgency, in empathy from the population. And I I say very directly to people, I say I'm the only candidate that's going to put a warning label on my presidency, that if you elect me president of the United States, I will ask more from you than any president has ever asked from you in your lifetime. And so I make this, I make the moral urgent claim. One of the principal sort of stories I tell is how my life was changed by comfortable people who did uncomfortable things in a time of moral crisis. In this case, it was white couples that posed as my parents to help us buy a home to be the first black family to integrate a town after my parents were turned away. The white couple put a bid on the house I grew up in, literally got the bid accepted on the day of the closing. Uh, they didn't show up, but a, my father, and another white man, a volunteer lawyer. And then he, the real estate agent doesn't accept it. He gets up and punches that lawyer in the face, sticks a dog on my dad. And as I was growing up in this town, my parents told me, you work hard, be earnest, but understand that you are here because of the sacrifices of comfortable people. In fact, the, the lawyer, when I went back to interview him for my book, said that he was sitting on, on March 7th, 1965, watching TV comfortably. He was struggling, he's a small business person, just starting his, his law firm. But he was watching a movie called Judgment at Nuremberg. And he said they broke away from that ongoing movie. This is a pretty big moment in American history. On that Sunday night, they broke away from an ongoing movie to show a bridge in Alabama where John Lewis and others had, had their heads fractured, beaten, That we know it as Bloody Sunday. And what I always say is like, this white guy could have done what I've done, see something horrible on TV and just sit there and treat it like a, like this is a spectator sport. But no, he stands up. First instinct is to go to Alabama. He realizes he can't close his business, not to mention afford a plane ticket. But then he decides, you know what? I'm not going to be able to do everything, but I got to do more in this moral moment. And then looked around to see who might need help in New Jersey, found a woman. The two of them started working together four years later. I wasn't born in '65. But in 1969, he gets a case file with my parents' name on it and changes the destiny of my life. I would not be a United States senator. I wouldn't be running for the highest office in the land. I wouldn't be the potentially the first descendant of a slave to move into the White House built by slaves if it wasn't for a comfortable person realizing that their justice is directly connected to somebody that doesn't look like them or necessarily pray like them. This country will not change. We will not meet the crisis of climate change just by electing one of us on the stage. Ain't going to happen. The only way we've done big things from beat the Nazis, frankly, to even go to the moon, is when Americans all got, in my, uh, got involved and we mobilized. I've seen scientists say it's going to take a World War II-like mobilization to deal with climate change. And I'll tell you this, my grandmother, ten, from Des Moines, Iowa— <laughs> She bragged to me till the day she died about what she did for the war effort, her victory gardens, her her buying war bonds as a working class black woman. And so, uh, yeah, are you kidding me? My whole stump speech is about challenging people that this is not we cannot pass gun. I, I am not but, more but, eloquent well, wanna, than wanna, Barack I wanna, Obama. I want to
0: push you on this a little bit, because yeah, um, so let me tell you about a, something I do. Uh. On this podcast, I have a trick, which now I'm going to, it's probably not going to work after I say this, but if I want to make a criticism of something close to me, the audience or something, I always frame it in terms of myself. I frame it in terms of a story of something I did in the past or a way that I am open to this critique and sort of right there for you, you you, you use that same move on me. Like I said, what do you need of me? And you gave me a story from your life and said, you know, and I didn't do that when I was comfortable. What do you need from me? Like, okay, if there's gonna be a World War II style mobilization on climate change, what do you need from me? Do you need me to pay higher gas? Like, make me uncomfortable. What what do you want from me in your political vision? What does it mean for me to practice a politics of radical love? I see how people have done it for you, but but push me.
1: So Ezra, you're a white guy. I know. <laughs> you say that almost <laughs> as if you're disappointed, man. <laughs> I, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Be proud. You know, it's, it's,
0: I, uh, I'm, I, I keep being told how tough it is out there for white guys now, <laughs> so
1: I'm worried about it. As Gandhi said, honor your incarnation, man. Uh, <laughs> so, so, look, it, we will not advance as a nation until people who aren't black or brown, you know, Start understanding. You know, Angela Davis said, it's not enough to say I'm not racist. You need to be anti-racism, anti-racist. And that means actively being conscious, as I am as a man of privilege—in that that being a man—being far more active to deal with these issues. Because I'll tell you what, right now, the racial wealth gap is getting worse. Right right now, we have—why did it take in 2013—talk about making people feel uncomfortable, fine. Here's a moment of making a a lot of people that worked in the United States Senate for the Democratic Party. I get down to Washington, black president, and and just I'm stunned at how much lack of diversity there is. I I don't know if you had podcasts about what the staffs, the people making decisions for the United States of America— are they in any way reflecting the diversity? I, I couldn't believe—I looked at committees. I couldn't find a, a, a black or brown face on major committees that make d- decisions that disproportionately impact black and brown communities. And thank God Schumer, me and Brian Schatz, went to him and said, "We, this is a reality that's unsustainable, that you need black people. Most of the senators here need black people are essential to the coalition that elects, him, elects them, but we don't have the, those folks represented in in people's staffs or positions of power. So Schumer, God bless him, was all on board enthusiastically with alacrity and and basically just said, what do you want to do? And we said, one is make every Democratic senator publish your diversity statistics. Guess what's happened? More women and people of color now have been hired and hired in positions of authority. It didn't take that much. But why did it take the fourth black person elected to the United States Senate to come down there and call that question? Questions aren't being called. Think about wealth and how it's created in this nation. We talk about the financial markets. Well, I get down to Washington, D.C. Texas is a red state, and they have an emerging manager program for managing their pensions, which creates hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of wealth managing these state pension funds. New York has 8 percent, I think, they have for an emerging manager. The big, biggest pension funds in America are the federal government. Why did it take me coming down to the United States Senate and asking the question? Why is it zero percent of our pension funds being managed by women or minorities? And by the way, they get better results, according to Barclays Banks. I think PNC did a study. Why? Why does it take a person of color to ask questions like that? Why aren't you doing it? And or the press holding folks accountable? We are not going to solve endemic problems unless people who those problems don't directly affect begin to understand that we are all in this together. I am here because of people that didn't look like me or pray like me, made a decision to sometimes put their lives on the line in order for other folks to to have justice, understanding that, as King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And so fundamentally, as one of my favorite life stories, not my life, it's Gandhi, about the mother and her son that asked him. Mother asked Gandhi to tell my son to stop eating sugar. He refused, told her to come back in two months. She comes back in two months. Now he does it. He says, son, you must stop eating sugar. And she goes, well, why didn't you just tell us two months ago? And Gandhi goes, well, because two months ago I was eating sugar. And so I struggle to live the values I want to live. You're right. My my whole career has been about trying to live up to the standards that I want to see in the world, so to speak. But I also know the people I I admire, the, the leader I want to be like is those leaders from our history that move people off couches and into the action. One of the first things I did when I was a city council person, there is a incredible irony to Connecticut and New Jersey, two of the highest income states in our nation have some of the lowest income cities. And around Newark is these very, very wealthy towns, communities where my friends live. I I know these towns, but when I was a city council person living in high rise projects, there was a very violent project sitting under 280, which is this overpass going into those wealthy suburbs, violence, people afraid to let their kids play outside, and we couldn't get anybody to do anything about it. And so, again, I'm a shadow, not even a shadow, uh, of, of the, the people I admire who's wall, who are on my walls, Gandhi, King, Harry Tubman. But I went out to there and I said, you know what? I, I'm going to go on a hunger strike. And and what the success of that effort— was that it got hundreds if not thousands of people, including suburban mayors and others, coming down to those projects and finally seeing with their own eyes the injustices that were just a few miles from their house. You want to know it's not – it's the morals of, my, of our country? You ask people should we have a nation that treats mental health issues with jails and prisons where it's more expensive – creates less safety because we don't have systems like we just saw the anti-Semitic attacks in Muncie, New York, that person had had demonstrated serious mental illnesses and and did not get the services. So we are less safe. It's more expensive. And we're not dealing with human dignity in terms of dealing with people with mental illness. The overwhelming majority, 90 percent, would say that's wrong. But yet we're not doing what's necessary to create common sense systems in which our society reflects that value. That's the problem. It's not that who, who in this presidential campaign has a better policy on mental health. It's who can awaken the moral urgency in this country to deal with this. And Ezra, this is what frustrates the hell out of me is the fact that other nations are doing a much better job than America right now in this generation of making their civic spaces reflect their personal values. What do you mean by that? On the right and on the left, we all say pregnant women, babies, we all give the rhetoric. Our values are that life is precious, is divine, is the hope of of humanity, is every baby. And by the way, we all know that genius is equally distributed around the planet Earth. As many geniuses born in Beverly Hills as is born in Newark, New Jersey. But when I say that's a, that is a core value of this country, and it's another core value. Let me give you more Americanism. That 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 we that wait no ev- no no
0: wait. I want to I want to know how they're making their public space their civic space reflect their values in a deeper way. Uh, don't don't serve it just like what is it that we are, that others are doing that we are not doing?
1: Universal prenatal care. We lead the industrial nations in infant mortality, in low birth weight babies, in maternal mortality. And for black women, it's four times worse. And the cost to our society, just medical costs, a preemie baby is so damn expensive. It would be cheaper, as my policy plan calls for, to give every low-income woman doula care.
0: Yeah, my um, I, I don't know if you know this. We haven't talked since it happened. So my son was born six weeks early. And something I can just say is that I've gotten the bills for that. And thank God we have good insurance, which everybody should have. Um, but we had a medical issue that led to that. but. It is so unbelievably expensive to have a premature child. like it is
1: unbelievably expensive. So our our civic spaces and by the way, I'm, I'm I'm sorry to hear that I'm happy. I know you and your wife and I'm so happy that you had the medical care care and this is why I call for a revival of civic grace, a more courageous empathy. This is why I call for radical love is because two points. One is, I could go through so many issues of our country standing up and singing our national anthem that we're the home of the brave, but our bravest come home and they're disproportionately homeless. I, I can go through issue after issue where I know the values of Republicans and Democrats and independents agree fundamentally it's wrong to have a nation that doesn't provide to make sure every child is born to this on this planet with a fair, equal start and that we are wasting the precious... Genius of our children, our country's most valuable natural resource. It's a, that is a value that is not manifest in our in our civic spaces. And other countries are doing a better job. But now isn't the next that question: because
0: we don't hold that value, I mean, I want to I want to be like a little sharper on this one because I think this is actually a very good example. You're in the Senate. You are watching the ongoing effort to gut Medicaid, to repeal Obamacare. You know. Better than I do, probably about like the case currently going through. It just got bounced back from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, where Republicans, including the Trump administration, are trying to use the individual mandate, which now does not have a penalty attached to it. They're saying, "Call that unconstitutional," because it is unconstitutional. Call the whole law unconstitutional. So, getting to people's values can be tricky, um, because people can, I think, bullshit a lot about their values. But I think that the clear value of a lot of your colleagues in a lot of this country is it no we do not care about people having anywhere near an equal start we like the idea of equality of opportunity and this maybe goes back a little bit to this confrontation of what it demands we like saying we believe in that but we don't believe in it and we certainly don't want to give up anything of our own um, i'm not i'm using maybe we in a weird way here but there are many people who do not want to give up anything of their own and certainly not any advantage their child has to make a quality of opportunity real and so Framing that as a value, isn't that missing in a way that it's that this is really a fight? It's a confrontation of power and it's a conflict of values.
1: So, first of all, I'm not going to disagree that there are people out there that have fundamentally different values than the ones I'm saying are our core values. There are bigots. There are racists. There's selfishness. But this is my theory of the case. It's why I'm running for president is simply this is. There has been wretchedness and bigotry and hatred in every generation. There have been people that have been fighting the legislation that that have established things that you and I take for granted as Americans now. And I've looked a lot. You and I both love to read, love students of history. I've looked at a lot of what has enabled those lurches forward towards justice in this country. And it was always that. Either circumstance or sets of leaders, usually a combination of both, have been able to move the consciousness of this country. And, and, and let's talk about tragedy. Four girls die in a bombing in, a, in Birmingham. It shook this nation, people that got off the, that went from comfort to discomfort and got involved, women throwing themselves out windows at the Shirtwaist Factory fire, shook this nation, laws changed. We live in a culture now where people get slaughtered from synagogue in Pittsburgh to a nightclub in Orlando to under people's desks. And even though 90 percent of Americans agree, 86 percent of NRA members agree on universal background checks, we're not making the change. And so I believe that the next president, first of all, demonizing Republicans as bad and the 60 million people that voted for them, that's not going to get us there. What's going to get us there is, I believe, because there's no partisan way to deal with climate change. I'm sorry. It's going to take a new American majority to get that done. We have to have the kind of leaders, plural, I don't think this is just a president, but leaders who can begin to command, demand, and inspire different thinking about our connections and us being all in this together. Because I could give you a balance sheet analysis of how policy after policy is making us less competitive globally, is hurting our economy, is is driving up debt, however you want to look at it. But it has to be a point in this country where people who's, who have great health insurance, who if a child is born as a preemie, they're all going to be OK. They're going to find a way, as heartbreaking and challenging as that might be, they're going to find a way to deal with that. Start caring about the people that don't and understanding that their well-being and that child's well-being that family's well-being are intrinsically tied. And and I know this has been done time and time again in our history to move us forward. That's why I'm running for president is because I believe we are at a precipice now where the very idea of America is becoming eroded more and more in fact. And unless we can move the moral consciousness of our nation, it's going to be very hard to pass the legislation necessary. And if it's just another partisan fight, you know the Senate right now. I will argue to you, by the way, if you want to get into this argument, that I'm the best person to be on the, camp, on the ballot to win in North Carolina Senate seat, to pick up a Georgia Senate seat, to pick up an Arizona Senate seat, because dear God, we need black and brown people to come out at record levels. But even if we get 51, 52 votes in the Senate, you and I both know that to get big things done, it's going to necessitate Republicans joining in that sense of urgency. Or getting rid of the filibuster. Or getting rid of the filibuster, which, by the way, even if you get rid of the filibuster, I know my Democratic Senate colleagues. I believe that healthcare is a right. I believe in a single payer system. But I tell voters all the time that with with colleagues who I love, J- Joe Manchin, I can go through the people in our party that are not going to support something yes. like that. No, no I, we I find- agree with
0: us. Right. Let me. I want to connect a couple things you said together, um, and 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 see and see what they pull together into. So what you are saying, I, I want to like agree with in a pretty deep way that to get anything done is going to be very hard. And to get anything done, the idea that you're going to get it done while turning off everybody who leans right in this country, given the way the geography and processes of our system work, is not going to work. I mean, Putting everything else aside, as you say, Joe Manchin comes from a state that's gonna go for Trump by a lot. And the one way he remains popular in a state like that is by showing that he's independent. So these are problems that I don't think any of the candidates really have a, a great answer to. What I hear you saying is that you believe that if we had a leader who stood up on stage and tried to inspire people towards a different kind of moral grace, towards each other, towards a country, tried to connect them to values and 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 a Deepness, a richness of what America's best traditions are, that it could kind of move the underlying moral framework in which people operate. But something you also said is that you're a student of history, and in a way that is explicit, much more so than other candidates, you root your candidacy in other movements of resistance. Um, the civil rights movement, I think, most friendly, You've quoted Gandhi, I think, three times already in this conversation. Um, <laughs> you quote Gandhi a lot. And you mentioned a hunger strike you did in New York. And when I look at those movements and think about them, one of the things they have is not just leaders who were trying to inspire people through great acts of rhetoric, but they had leaders who led at great, great, great personal cost acts of radical confrontation. And something that I've seen you work with before are radical acts of confrontation. Again, not that many people running for president now have led hunger strikes but it's not something I've really seen in this campaign. I mean, as you say, I think that a lot more of this campaign is sort of you give speeches trying to call people to this. So tell me about how this history of radical confrontation either generates ideas for you and how you might run the campaign or if you are president, how you might
1: run that. Because frankly, and you know this as well as I do, speeches are an overrated way of changing minds. Well, first of all, I, I and I want to answer your question, but I just want to tell you what's working for us in Iowa and by the way, we have a really difficult perfect storm that's going about to hit us when I'm off the field for two weeks, maybe two weeks here for this. Uh, I've had to come off the field for the as a result of the suleimani attack. But our whole campaign in Iowa is based upon the power of persuasion in things like that we get and I've had reporters now please come see what happens as a reporter said to me yesterday from a pretty significant outlet no other candidates get the kind of standing ovations you get. reporters joke with me about bringing tissues. Uh, uh, because it's about breaking open the heart of the uh, of of us as a community of people, and we get commitment to caucus cards at rates. I don't know if other people get a third of an audience signing a commitment to caucus card. Switching from folks, we're building that now. The reason why it's tough now for us is because being off the field here in D.C. for uh, classified briefings for tr- it, it literally means thousands of people we won't be able to touch that we could have touched in this final a month sprint. So I'm going to tell you right now, when I lay, when I lay out the re- – I've had people come up to me and this is a typical thing, say to me, I didn't know what I was looking for until I heard you. I don't want fighting fire with fire. Uh, uh, I don't want uh, – you know, I make the joke about what my first event in, in one of my bit, first big events in Iowa. A guy says to me, I want you to punch Donald Trump in the face. And I just joked with him. I was like, that's a felony, man. Let me tell you why that's the worst strategy to beat him. So I just want to push this to you that our campaign strategy, given my ability – to, to communicate these morals and values, I believe that that is a winning strategy. We, we, we're we definitely hitting a turbulence now. But, but then why are you polling at 2.6% in Iowa? John Kerry, John Edwards a month before the caucus were polling at 4% and 2% in Iowa. And they went on and won. They were polling 6th and 7th, 4% and 2%. And they finished 1 and 2. The polls have never been predictive if we use the same metrics that the that the DNC is using right now for the debate stage, Carter, Bill Clinton would not be the former presidents right now. This polling idea that the national media – folk national polls, Barack Obama was about 15, 20 points behind Hillary Clinton in the national polls. He was behind in South Carolina by about 20 points amongst black people. To use polling as a metric belies history completely. With the Des Moines Register, Iowa's starting line have said from jump – Best organizations on the ground, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren. What local elected leaders, we lead in local leader endorsements in Iowa and New Hampshire, the whole field, toggling one or two, going back to one and two, depending on where uh, uh, Elizabeth and and the vice president are. By the metrics that matter, this is why the New Hampshire Democratic Party did a unanimous resolution basically saying I should be on the stage. This is why the local media in Iowa is saying he is one of the top four or five competitive campaigns here, and he's not on a debate stage of seven people. So I'm sorry. The polling has never been predictive of outcome. What it is is the way I beat a machine in Newark, which we would have never polled well with. But again, it's about change. It's it's what King said. King wrote the letters in the Birmingham jail, not to the bad people. He wrote it saying to good people who are doing nothing. And what I'm saying to you, and I'm going to pivot back to the – I think the really important question you asked is if I'm saying to you that that some of my colleagues have policy platforms as good as me on a lot of issues. I have no monopoly on great ideas. Some of them have great ideas that, that I've, I've loved. But the question for the next leader that I want is someone like past leaders that have inspired me to action that I wouldn't have taken anyway and I'm a good guy. Because when I interview people for a job, I don't tell – don't tell me what I want to hear. Don't tell me about the tab on your website. Tell me when you were in impossible situations before, what the heck did you do to make a way out of no way? Because as Baldwin writes in the last page of The Fire Next Time, that's the best of us. When, when human history, which is a, a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible, and the next president will have impossible cards handed to her or him, impossible cards, And by the way, when I was mayor of the city of Newark, on a much smaller scale, being mayor in the middle of a recession, taking over from previous mayors who were indicted and convicted, we had impossible problems. And the first problem I knew was that nobody gave a shit about Newark. We did, who lived there, other dedicated folks did, but the rest of the country was afraid of Newark, looked down on us, tinged with biases and bigotry. And it somehow I, – I remember going out talking to a shopping center. We had terrible food deserts in Newark. And I had a, I had a major corporation laugh at me when I talked about moving into an inner city. And I couldn't get foundation leaders to return my call because I thought national foundations should be in Newark. I, I couldn't get developers to come even look at the, the – 12 miles from New York City with the best transportation superstructure in the northeast. And I couldn't get you to look at my city? My professors who are not alive – the people I look about, people like James Bevel and Dorothea Cotton, who were these amazing artists of activism and designed the Birmingham protests, not King. King was against their strategies. What these great artists of activism were able to do was to get people to to look, to confront, to see the humanity and the dignity of places, spaces, and people. And we knew consciously that was our challenge. You know, the reputation on me was from being some hot dog as when I was mayor. Uh, when I came to the Senate, I, my first year, I wouldn't talk to the press, but I knew that I had to find creative ways to get people to look at Newark. And, and I have tons of ways we did that, many of which we didn't know each other back then, but you watched. Hell, when, I, when Conan— I, I, Ob-
0: I volunteered for your
1: the campaign
0: on Sharp James
1: that you didn't win. I, I'm I, sorry. I forgot your I've been your around family. there for a long time, uh, I'm sorry. I forgot. I forgot your, your family. Yeah, my more, family's m- known you for a long time. For a ridiculously long time and, and believed in me before— hell, anybody did, <laughs> um, frankly, when I was before many people that I should say. Uh, I, I,
0: the, the, the quick the quick backstory here is my um, late grandfather is a very, very longtime Cory Booker fan from back when he was on the New York City Council. My grandparents were in New York.
1: So um, I grew up hearing about Cory Booker and how he was going to be president someday. But more than that, your grandfather, when I was a new city council person, sat came to see me and sat with me and saw things in me I didn't see in myself and was a constant source of kindness uh, and encouragement to me on my toughest years when I was having death threats and, uh, you know, violent attacks, like my windows on my car smashed, tires slashed, intimidation. Watch the movie Street Fight if 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 you want to see that kind of stuff. And I love your grandfather. He's an extraordinary um, man, and uh, miss him now as I'm running for president. Uh,
0: yeah, not a man who was ever very involved in politics. I mean, that was a very unusual... Is an unusual thing that you sparked in him, but but I think it was in part for some of these reasons. And so I actually want to pull us back to this question of confrontation and what are th- what are approaches people can do that are
1: that maybe are not expected here. Well, can I, I I just want to give one example and then and then go back to what you, I think you're rightfully saying, which is stop talk about what what we can do, but but just you know late night talk show hosts listen to them, listen a little more closely about who they pick on, who they joke about. And so what I knew was that late-night talk show hosts can't help but talk about cities. they Chicago violence jokes, Detroit jokes. And we knew one would come our way, one – and it would be an opportunity. And so, you know, uh, late – I had done something to lower prescription drug costs for uh, uh, some of my – an area of my city, the North Ward area, um, we started a pilot program to lower prescription drug costs, got a little national attention, and and Conan O'Brien on The Tonight Show comes on and says, I hear Newark, New Jersey has a new healthcare program. Uh, I think the best healthcare program for Newark, New Jersey would be a bus ticket out of town. And at that point, I was, thank God, because this was on national TV, you elevated Newark to do what often is done to low-income spaces, black, black and brown spaces. And so, I knew I had an opportunity, but creativity is really important. And so, I went to City Hall, filmed this video, At the end of it was, you know, I'm Cory Booker, mayor of the city of Newark, Conan O'Brien, you've insulted our city. And I'd already bragged about Newark and I said, by the power vested in me, by the people of the city of Newark, I hereby ban you from Newark Airport, you're on the no-fly list, try JFK, buddy. And knew the video, this is the beginning of Twitter, we were real innovators on the platform, And the video goes viral and so viral that I get angry calls to City Hall from civil libertarians who seem to be really concerned about the civil rights of Conan O'Brien and telling me, how can you violate it? I'm like, four-letter word response, joke. But even the TSA uh, uh, put a – I still remember when somebody came to my office and said the TSA put a clarification on their website that mayors in America can't ban people from their airports. But it, it blew up to become one of the top stories. Suddenly, I'm on shows that wouldn't pay attention to a mayor of Newark. I'm going on Larry King, daytime talk show host, more earned media for my city, positive earned media because media only wanted to show violence and corruption. Uh, we're getting more earned media than in like a 10, 14-day period than we had gotten in years probably before, get eventually invited on Conan O'Brien's. He apologizes on national TV, He gives $100,000 to Newark charities. But I always say... After all that being one of the top trending stories in America for a good couple weeks with satellite trucks in front of City Hall, people paying attention to Newark and giving me countless opportunities to brag about our city, after that whole uh, kerfuffle between Conan and and me, getting people to return my calls was a lot easier, getting developers to come in. We built our first new hotel in 40 years, developer from Chicago, that that supermarket chain that laughed at me. uh, They're in my city now what what, you you, it's humor i mean the people that are can i examine that story from a different angle though yeah which is isn't one of the lessons of that um
0: that's a confrontation you picked you picked a and i mean you did it in a very interesting way and like a creative way but i think here about some of what has like risen people and i think it is a problem and i will say it is my problem and it is a problem that my industry creates that our biggest bias is for its fights and like if you want to get more talking time at the debates like Call somebody out by name. Then you guys go back. I mean, you obviously have been like in the middle of a bunch of these and like Hillary Clinton versus various billionaires was like a great storyline for them. Kamala Harris versus Joe Biden for a while. But isn't what you're saying there that the thing that makes people pay attention is a
1: fight? Well, no, because I told you stories of hunger strikes. I want to you remember this was a national news. I lived on food stamps for a bit uh, to attract attention to people having to live on two dollars and 14 cents a day to feed themselves or a child. Um, in my life, I've picked different ways of bringing this. Sure, in the Senate, I went up against the broke Senate tradition to, to testify against right. one of my colleagues, Jeff Sessions. Uh, but but I also sat with John Lewis during the healthcare debate, and turned out to be one of the most beautiful experiences of protest in my life, where the two of us just sat on the steps of the Capitol, opened up a Facebook Live scene, and slowly throughout the night, hundreds and hundreds of people came to sit at John Lewis's feet and have a, a an incredible discussion that got carried all over the country. It it, it is whoever – this president right now that we have is breaking norms and traditions. Barack Obama, God bless him. He played by the queen's rules for lack of a better way of putting it. This president is breaking norms and traditions every day to demean, distract, divide, degrade. If I'm the president of the United States, I'm not playing by the queen's rules. I will do things from that office people do not expect as I did from the mayor's office – when I was the chief executive of a city in crisis in a recession, global recession, which is depression-like circumstances, I'm going to do things to challenge, to confront, to, to show the absurdity of, to drive us as a nation to become a nation of activists, more greater activists, because we are activists, so many incredible activists, but to do more because the competition around this planet, if you look at—you like data, so look at the World Economic Forum's data on— A whole bunch of indices of where we used to be number one in my dad's generation, infrastructure, education, research and development, percentage of your GDP just investing in the things that are going to create the jobs of the future, not to mention deal with things like Alzheimer's or climate change. We're letting our competitors out, invest and innovate in us when we are drafting off, our economy is drafting off of the innovations and breakthroughs that we did generation ago now. Do you have some ideas of specifically in the White House what you would do that people aren't expecting? Oh, my God. Trust me. Give me some. I'm not going to do that because part (laughs) of it is the element of surprise. But I think about this all the time. If I was the president of this nation, and again, as a guy who's shown this already, in this field, nobody was picked up. Nobody picked up the cards that I have. I don't mean to be disrespectful to the incredible people who I admire, look up to, and have learned from. But I did not find a way to into politics and through an easy pathway. That's why the Oscar nominated movie it, it was so popular when it was done, though it lost to March of the Dagnab Penguins in the Oscars, because the road that I had to come up, the fights, you want to talk about fighters, the fights we had to win, and then to get that office finally in a city that had 60 years of shrinking population, 60 years of losing its tax base, a school system under state takeover ranked one of the worst performers in urban districts in New Jersey, and then tumbling into a recession, and then turning it around to now a city that's growing, number one school system in America for beat the odd schools, kids in poverty, going to college. When I was leaving, New Jersey, Newark is 6% of the state's population, and we had one out of every three building permits in the state going on in Newark, cranes in the air, thousands, tens of thousands of jobs. So I've seen the most difficult circumstances that even my people in my cabinet told me we couldn't get out of. And we, not me, we found a way out, creating unusual coalitions, getting more people to suddenly, like Huck Finn, get, come and help you than, than they had ever even planned to come and help us. And we found a way out. When I think about being president of the United States, I'm always imagining ways to take issues that previous presidents have failed again and again and again. As I say about gun violence, I'm, I nobody was more eloquent after a mass shooting when when Barack Obama sang Amazing Grace, he got me. I I was I was crying watching him on TV sing. but that hasn't worked. And but so and so what, I, what would I mean? I'm, I'm sorry to push you so much on this, but like as a journalist,
0: right, I want to make this tangible. And I know what you did in New York. And and to be honest, I mean, one reason that I, I was there and have covered you so much over your career is that some of what you did is so unusual. And to me, it was very inspiring. I mean, the hunger strike and the way you write about that in your book and um, the challenging of Sharp James. It is very easy for me to explain to somebody what is the like the confrontational radical love of Cory Booker from from the Newark years. And you've been a very effective senator um, and have, like, I think, done creative things. But it's surprising me that you'll say, well, I can't tell you what I do in that as pressing because of. Give, give me some examples,
1: even if they're hypothetical, because people need to be able to imagine this. Well, the first thing we have to stop doing, and this is hard, but you never caught Martin Luther King demonizing Bull Connor. Like, his humanity is very dignity. Now, look, I will, I will fight you physically if you're trying to hurt someone else. But there is a power in not letting somebody pull you so low as to hate them. So one of my favorite stories of my life was— how I got something passed. Jim Inhofe is a very, very conservative senator. I might call him a right-wing conservative senator. I knew when I got to the United States Senate, you know, Brene Brown says, it's hard to hate up close, so pull people in. It's the
0: first time Brene Brown and Jim Inhofe's names have been that close to each other.
1: (laughs) 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 So I start going to Bible study in Jim Inhofe's hideaway, for those of you who don't know, every senator in the actual Capitol off the Senate floor have these little hideaways. The more seniority you have, the more incredibly beautiful they are. And so he's a senior senator. I mean, his, you know sitting with other Republicans. Kirsten Gillibrand is there as a Democrat. And I notice on his desk, and, and again, this is how we prejudge each other. And I'm sorry to say that it surprised me that on his shelf, uh, I think it's his shelf, there is a picture of a black girl framed sitting prominently. Something I would never have known about him and if I never got close to him, I never would have seen. And it turns out to be his granddaughter. And we talked about that. And when it came time to the the big education bill, the correction for the awful no child left behind, I was fit to be tied because my party was pushing uh, in a way that was just going too far. And, And I wanted states to have to disaggregate their data so that people, activists in those states could hold you accountable for how marginalized populations were doing in school. But this was a time that they were working against data and accountability. And so I wanted to get an amendment on, on, on the bill that was being managed by Lamar Alexander who was like, no amendments, we're passing a clean bill without amendments. And so I want to get the, the data for homeless kids and foster kids disaggregated. And I have an amendment, I, I, I there's no chance of me getting it passed. So I go to a chairman of a committee who I know has shown that he does have care about children that might be coming out of foster care or from difficult circumstances. And I ask him, I still remember this moment on the Senate floor. And he looks at me and he goes, you want this, Corey? And I go, yes. I remember walking away from him. And then he walks around the Senate onto the Democratic side of the aisle, hands me my little card I'd given him with stuff And he says, I'm in. And he walks away. I don't even know what he's talking about. So I kind of run after him. I go, you're going to co-sponsor my amendment? He goes, yeah. And that is now law of the land. And even my staff didn't think we could get it done. And so I I just think that around this country right now, I did this when I went out to meet with Republican farmers in the Midwest. This is before I'm running for president. And this is something I didn't know before I walked in. But the guy whose house I sat at, table I sat at, told the person was doing me after they looked me up online said that uh, we can't have Corey Booker in our house and that's like why? And the guy goes, because we're a Christian family and we can't have someone like that in our house. now I'm a Christian and but yet the the lens this person was looking through, I don't know what right- wing media they looked at, but it' so vilified me that they didn't he didn't even want me at his table. and I got there. I could feel the tension. he showed me his hogs and his cows, and I'm trying to break the tension with my worst dad jokes ever. Like, sir, these cows are utterly amazing. You could have given me a pity laugh on that. No, w-
0: I'm not. I'm not I'm not
1: I, participating I, I, in this. I, I was milking the jokes for everything that I could get. That, Your that producer back bad. here is laughing. Come on, man. Anyway, Je- Jeff, he, Jeff is an easy laugh. <laughs> we sit at his table, we start talking about corporate consolidation on how he the, the share of the consumer dollar when we buy something in our supermarkets. That there's so much less of that now goes to the actual person who produced the food. They're getting squeezed because Monsanto has bought up everything. The cost of their seeds and chemicals have gone up. They used to have five people to sell there to. The Stockyard and Packards Act just has been devastated. All the protections. Now they only have one person to set One of his friends, his neighbors, was afraid to tell me the truth because he was afraid of being cut off. And and so by the end, he's inviting his family out to take selfies with me, pictures with me. He and I are completely in agreement and I've gone back. I'm the, I, I got the Farmers Union Highest Legislative Award last year because of the legislation I've been doing to help uh, – was informed in part by conversations with Republican farmers. So uh, the first thing that we have to start challenging this country is to not let the corporations who, who are getting so much money from us – Because of how much we hate each other. Van Jones was doing with Newt Gingrich a TV show called Crossfire. And they got to know each other. They pulled each other in as human beings and realized not only did they like each other, but they agreed on more than they disagreed. And so the last segment of the show, they decided to make it ceasefire, where we agree. Talk about trying to challenge America and educate America. When they did that, the the corporate powers, the producers, and all the people who want ratings— told them they can't do it anymore because the ratings aren't there. You know what news started like back in the 50s and 60s. Now it's ent- entertainment. And what seems to entertain is when gladiators get into the ring and kill each other. But that's cr- that's crazy. I, sorry, I take your point on the the broader thing you're saying here. But look at what Newt Gingrich is like right now, like in politics right now. Yeah. And I'm again, I have a guy in the Senate that is in these fights. But who just passed a major criminal justice reform bill with sitting down with people that if I vilify them, Mark Holden is the corporation counsel for the Koch brothers. And if I had this attitude that the Koch brothers are pure, unadulterated evil, and they have that attitude about me, by the way, we would have never been able to – you know who helped push that bill to the floor? Because Mitch McConnell didn't want that bill to the floor. It was the alliances we had with people like them. And, and why is that important to me who lives in a neighborhood on that is vulnerable? Because you could have – somebody could have their holier-than-thou position about how dare you sit down with the Koch Brothers General Counsel. But black people would still be in prison. Thousands have been – the crack cocaine, powder cocaine disparity, correcting for that like we did in that bill, 90 percent of the people being released, thousands, are black And those folks, I tell you right now, don't give a shit about whether I sat down with the Koch brothers or friends with Newt Gingrich or talked to Jim Inhofe. They just want justice. But so this is actually, I think, a really rich spot here. And
0: one thing I want to say is I think that the criminal justice bill that you are key on there is arguably the most important important and impressive bipartisan achievement of recent years uh, that that happened under Donald Trump, too, is, I think, very impressive. And you had Jared Kushner. So... On the one hand, I think that that is actually an example where things are not as log jammed as people think they are. I go back and forth on an underlying point you're making here because I cover the Senate and everybody in the Senate will have a story about having found an unusual coalition in a way very much like the one you're talking about. They found a, a human connection to somebody. And and then when I step back and look at it and I see the number of party line votes, sometimes I think that the humanity senators see in each other Can sometimes create breakthroughs, but it also ends up being a um, what's the right way to put it misleading about the sort of like macro politics of the Senate. You know, Joe Biden, I think, runs into this a lot. We're on the one hand he's saying he's going to get Republicans to work with him. And on the other hand, they're trying to call Hunter Biden in as a witness. Um, But the, the thing that I want to pull out of here, because maybe it's this, is that. One form of radical confrontation is with your own side, right? That it's an argument for uh, with all these people on the left who think that politics should be a fight between the left and the right and who think you can't compromise and who do want to demonize. And I mean, there's certainly a much sharper drawing of lines on the left than there has been in recent years. And I think that it is possible that one of the um, I guess maybe I need to put this to you not as a not as amusing. Is one of your arguments that the left has become too enamored of confrontation and a politics of power and has lost its ability or its optimism about a politics of pluralistic compromise?
1: I mean, there's so many layers to what you just asked me. Because, yes, because it's so very what, badly phrased. Well, what so much of what we're talking <laughs> about is the Senate and so much of what I'm trying to talk about is us as a culture. And, and so, yeah, look... I've had arguments with people who, who want to call me a, a moderate, pragmatic dem to try to tell them I'm far more radical <laughs> than uh, than a lot of people that you think are radical because I live in a community where every single day I know what's at stake. And I would much rather move the ball six inches for this family in, in my neighborhood and be able to make their lives six inches better than be surrendered to the purity that you're talking about that refuses to even have – a negotiation where you're not going to get everything. It's not going to be black and white like you want it to be. I I I know what's at stake in 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 a very in very personal ways. Lives are at stake in, in neighborhoods on the margins like like mine. If we don't have people that can actually get into a scrum, fight it out, and come out with something, but I also know that we have a broken system in America, and, we, and you've talked about this on lots of different podcasts. That from campaign finance reform to gerrymandering. These are things that break the whole system itself. You know I've had fights with people within my own party who criticize me for having a city that has high-performing charter schools, the the, the second highest-performing charter school city in America, and that now in our party, there's presidential candidates who want to get rid of the charters. And and by the way, if they want to come after schools that are serving black and brown low-income kids in my city, you're going to have to come through me. And I don't care because if you're a black kid in Newark from the time I was— Mayor, uh, uh, to now, your chance of going to a high-performing school that beats those wealthy suburbs that hire people, to private detectives to follow around kids, often brown kids, to see where they go home to, because so many people used to use fake addresses in suburban towns to give their kids some hope of a great public education. We, we, if you're a black kid in my city, your chance of going to a high-performing school that beats the suburbs, beats the average out there go, went up about 400 percent. And I don't care about your purity. We did what was necessary to now make our school system one of the highest performing school systems uh, in in the country. I care about people who are excluded from opportunity getting it, fairness, justice, and those things. And I will fight you (laughs) using every creative means possible to fight for people who are being left out and excluded. But that doesn't mean that I, I don't understand the larger tectonic plates that have to shift if we're gonna be a more democratic society in a a period in America that's moving dramatically against democracy as corporate power is being elevated, as individual rights and freedoms even to control your own body is being limited. But but I wanna get back to why I think you, that, that we won't make change. We never have. We didn't get – in 1920, we didn't get the right to vote for women because a bunch of men on the Senate floor got together in a huddle and said, hey, fellas, I think it's time. Let's give women the right to vote. Ready? Break. It happened because of incredible activism, not just amongst women. The last – Frederick Douglass' last meeting he went to before he died was a suffrage meeting. Why do we have – why is the ADA – why do we have disability rights? We have a long way to go. But incredible disability rights activists, they were throwing themselves in front of buses. The civil disobedience of of the disability community called the conscience of this country to task and expanded our moral imagination and we changed laws. And so from gun violence, I'm telling you, I think about this every day because I'm haunted by the people I know that have been killed by gun violence. I'm haunted by the one time I tried to stop somebody from bleeding to death and failed from gunfire. I think about every day as a president and how I'm going to get us out of this rut, deep morally failing rut to be a nation that now has told all of our children that we can't protect you, so we're going to send you to public schools to teach you how to hide. We have now more shelter-in-place drills than fire drills in America. I think all the time about as a president, what can I do different to scratch this old record where we're all in the groove. And not changing anything and how we can begin to mobilize this country to do the things that 90 percent of the country already agree to do. Give me the gun control version. I mean, I, we've been going back and forth on this a bit, but if you think every
0: day about how to not play by the Queen's rules on gun control that Barack Obama played by,
1: what, what rules are you going to play by? How are you going to change the game? Well, Parkland students – now, I think it was nowhere near the level of change they were demanding for, but they had a Republican governor – being willing to introduce legislation. Now, you and I both know how that happened. That Republican governor suddenly was more afraid, and I, I don't mean to, and this is not actually morally necessarily right, but I'm ascribing to him a cynicism, that he was more afraid of the Parkland students and the backlash at the polls than he was of the NRA and the corporate gun lobby. That's what we're talking about here in politics. is Who is that person that's blocking change more afraid of? Their corporate benefactors? or the people themselves. That's how we've gotten over filibusters in the past, is that suddenly people understand this is politics. This is why I think King's- but wait, so how do you make them
0: afraid as president? I mean, because Barack Obama also wanted the public opinion to be what swept away the resistance and it, it wasn't enough. And that I mean, public opinion after Sandy Hook was quite intense. So when you think about
1: what you will be able to do to force a different kind of confrontation, what is the different rules you will play by? Well, because again, they, they, we now live in a culture where we have a mass shooting, we see a rise in attention and focus, and then it goes away. So how, the question is, and I'm, again, I do not want to discuss tactics with you, is but how do you sustain that public moral outrage for longer than a news cycle? How do you organize around that? How do you mobilize around that? And, and, and that's when change is made.
0: But can that's why you don't want to discuss tactics with me? Because not that I like to cover tactics as my thing in life, but I think that the thing I'm trying to push you on is I think people really feel they can imagine the Bernie Sanders presidency and its form of radicalism or the Joe Biden presidency and its form of restoration and something that is. You contain multitudes, you really do, compared to other politicians I've covered. And we just had this really, you just gave me a really interesting exchange, where on the one hand, you were talking about the benefits of pragmatism, the need to actually, that true radicalism requires you to advance the ball six inches. And then you sort of also are trying to hold the other side of you understand the big forces and that you need to change everything. And so I think
1: it is hard for people to see it specifically. Let me give you one specific tactic that I'm going to do. I will be the president that turns Texas blue. Tell me how. Well, one is, heck, I have a girlfriend who founded Votal Latina. I can show you from the data, this much invested will get this much higher voter participation rates. Why have this party not done a massive voter registration, engagement, and mobilization? Because you and I both know Texas long ago passed the demographics that it should be a blue state. Why Why are we not doing Why did? And this is a mistake of Obama. He got elected goes into office, and then basically doesn't empower a 50-state strategy for the Democratic Party. And and I know technology. I've been looking at it a long time. Let's take my black minister, for example, one of the biggest black churches in in New Jersey. When it's time for voting, he just says, sold to the polls, all vans outside, doesn't tell people who to vote for unless I'm on the ballot. No, I'm joking. Uh, um, But there's no systems of accountability. Now, I've looked at social science research. You know what one of the biggest persuaders or whether you, Ezra Klein, are going to vote in your school board election or not? Is this is one of the biggest persuaders, I'm sorry to say, is shame. If you know that other people, it'll be public, <laughs> whether you voted or not, it's much more likely you go to the polls. I could give my minister an app today <laughs> with design an app that on his phone he would have his church membership list and their voting record in every voting, because this is public information. Now it's a different conversation. What if he puts up is the value of this church, not telling you who to vote for, but to vote and to engage? And he puts up on the big screen those people who don't vote. There are so many things we know work to mobilize, engage. It's why – look, I'm a guy who gets invited by everybody in my in my Senate. Everybody – and I do it willingly and we all should be doing it for each other. But people want me to come out and help them to get folks uh, – uh, vote vote for them. I travel all the time to help other candidates from state legislators all the way up to Uh, all that I did to get Hillary Clinton elected. And I often show up in black and brown communities. And one of the most common responses I get from black folks who feel like here's a black guy from Newark, I can talk to him real, is why do you all only show up when it's election time? Now, I see the billions of dollars they're going to spend on this race by committed Democrats who have those billions of dollars. Why aren't we building a Democratic Party really in a concerted fashion? Because the Republicans are terrified of it. Republicans in leadership are doing everything they can to take away black and brown voters in the South because Nixon's Southern strategy, racist Southern strategy is on the precipice of falling. And what they are doing, some are doing in in Republican legislatures in states all throughout the South, is they're racing to pass laws to make it more difficult for black people to vote simply because they know, not only because of the gutting of of the voting rights legislation, because they know that if black folks, brown folks... Come out and vote at high rates. You will start to see North Carolina turning blue. You will start to see Texas turning blue. I'm with Stacey Abrams. You will see Georgia start turning blue. If African-Americans, if young people, I can go through the demographics, start voting at higher rates in midterm elections, you don't even have to go up that high. Millennials are voting around 20 percent. Get them to 35, 40 you will not – You will. we will have control of Congress like we used to have as Democrats back in the days of Tip O'Neill and you had decades-long majorities. This is a demographic fight uh, that, we, that we can win in terms of uh, progressive people who share our values. And I think we can go further because if we have real conversation with labor, with farmers, I can go through the groups that Republicans are now competing against us for that when you actually ask them the ideas, they're with us. You poll Obamacare, people hate it. You poll the principles of Obamacare, the actual policies, and majority of Republicans love it. They, they are doing a much better job in their horrible marketing towards groups that should be with us. I'm going to be the president that understands. I'm the president of every person in the United States. I don't care if you like me, voted for me or not. I'm going to do everything I can to keep you safe and make you more economically prosperous. But I'm going to also be the leader of the Democratic Party in a way you haven't seen before. And I'm going to be in states building the kind of ways if Texas turns blue, will we ever have a Republican president again? No, not until the Republican Party stops being doing policies that hurt black and brown people like their immigration policies, which they used to not be against until you had the Fox News culture of vilifying the very people that helped to build this country, which are immigrants. So that's one thing I will say guilty as charged. I will be an unapologetic leader of the Democratic Party as president of the United States and build it better than any other president ever has, because I'm the one that has come from a background that we beat machines, powerful, wealthy machines, by organizing on the ground. We're going to build the party again in 50 states from the grassroots up.
0: Let me ask you about a couple of the policies that you have in, 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 in your agenda that I think deserve a bit more attention. And in particular, one that I think about a lot is you are the only candidate to my knowledge who really emphasizes the idea that if you want to reverse mass incarceration, you need to reverse it as well for violent criminals. We have a tendency in American politics to separate issues into the good people deserving of help maybe unfairly treated by the system and the undeserving. And in the mass incarceration debate, the violent criminals are seen as the undeserving. Tell me a bit about that, because that's, I think, a place where you're sort of idea of radical love as a base for politics and your policy come together in a way that that is challenging for people, but necessary if the country is going to achieve
1: any kind of reversal of its carceral state. So I know you have raging nerds like me and you that listen to your podcast. So I would I would ask everybody to read the amicus brief that Arlen Specter wrote to the Supreme Court when he was uh, talking about not having life imprisonment for um, juveniles and it was mentioned in Just Mercy, which is – if you don't want to go and read a raw brief, read Just Mercy because he talks about – and quotes Arlen Specter, a guy who attacked police – physically attacked police officers, was guilty of arson, says, thank God when I was shooting off a gun, it didn't hit anybody, um, who just talks about his his years. And he became a United States senator because we have a different justice system, number one, for uh, certain people and not for others. This idea – and I've watched fistfights in my life. Tried to break up too many properly uh, for my own good. But I've seen guys get punched, fall backwards. If you hit your head a wrong way, you would have been a uh, manslaughter, murder. None of us should be judged by the worst of things we've done. All of us who've sped 10 miles over the speed limit, if we lost control and hit somebody, manslaughter, violent crime. I, the, the idea that there are people in jail. I love visiting prisons, one, because I'm driven by so much of my life boils down to Matthew 25 uh, uh, in the Christian faith. But I just believe that Americans, people are being put in prisons in your name. It's the people versus or, uh, you know, go to prisons and see the conditions. And when I go to prisons, one of my stock questions is for the warden who usually comes out and greets me. Are there people here that don't belong? And these tough people, women and men, I've been to prisons for both, with both both wardens. uh, You'll see them suddenly hard, tough people look very soft and say, there are people here that are wasting taxpayer dollars, and many of them are so-called violent prisoners. By the way, the definition of violent crime has become so watered down. If you and I, as we were driving along, I didn't even expect it. You jump out of the car, pull a fake gun out of the glove compartment, stick somebody up for their avocado toast, um, and then jump back in the car. It's a real millennial uh, drive-by right there. <laughs> I was hoping to get you to – your producer's laughing at all of my bad jokes. Um, but, but you jump back in the car, I don't know what to do, so I just drive away. I am the driver, a violent felon. We see women right now in prison, the fastest growing uh, prison population, getting ca- caught in charge for violent felonies, never lifted a hand, never lifted a gun, but their proximity to the bad men they're often or the men who do bad things that they're often involved with, get them there. and And even if you've murdered somebody when you' are 20, and now you are sixty. You don't deserve our, our justice and our mercy and our forgiveness and our and, and what? Where have we become to be such a society of, of of retribution as opposed to restorative justice? And so I, I'm sorry. I, I, you, you want to talk about radical? I'm the only person in this race who's pointed to seventeen thousand people who are currently in prison who do not belong there, and I can document why it's seventeen thousand. One is because that crack cocaine, powder cocaine that we made. Eighteen to one, uh, we should make it one to one, and just by doing that, make thousands of people eligible for for clemency. I, I, I shouldn't have, you know, God bless her soul, the Kardashian. I shouldn't be a Kardashian. That should not trigger clemency in this country. We should have processes and systems that are fair. The other, I can point to thousands of people. If the Senate, eighty-seven votes in the Senate, has now said, I think we would. I think Lindsey Graham missed the final vote, so it would have been eighty-eight. Have said that. Sentences are too long, but we did not make that retroactive. That as president of the United States, 88 senators said sentences are unjust. We're going to apply it to the people that are already there. That puts people on the pathway. So I, I don't th- – this to me – and we haven't talked about race, which is an issue that permeates every element of our society, environmental injustice, the healthcare system. Uh, I can go through – where in education – how how racist still continues to be driving deep inequalities in our country if we are not talking about it and addressing it. And as a guy, again, I should not be the person in the United States – it should not take me coming to the United States Senate to bring up something like sickle cell anemia, which gets so much less federal funding even though it affects so many more people, but they're black and brown people. I should not have to be the one calling out – Everything from diversity on staff to pension fund management to small business, so small business association. When you come to the issue we're talking about, about moving this country's consciousness on issues, we we have to be able to, and I will be a precedent on the criminal justice system, which is Michelle Alexander calls a new Jim Crow. That talks about how we have a system that you have presidents getting elected to office who are doing things that black kids are getting arrested for every single day in 2017 there was more marijuana arrests in this country than all the violent crime arrests combined and and there's a major there's no difference between blacks or whites for using marijuana selling marijuana but blacks are multiple times more likely up towards a four times more likely to be convicted of it so criminal justice is an issue that is so toxic what we do, what we do to human beings is 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 human rights violations and and this is an issue that drives me and and if you don't have mercy or a sense of Justice for people just because they're, quote, unquote, a violent criminal. I just don't get it. I don't get why you draw that line. Let me ask you about another policy here, too,
0: that I does very much bear on the race issue and that to me is a definitional issue for your campaign. And I wish it's been getting more attention is the baby bonds idea, which you framed. It's a universal policy, but it would create uh, baby bonds for children up to $50,000, depending on income. Um, you framed it as a way of closing the racial wealth gap. Uh There's been a lot of attention to UBI, um, Universal Basic Income, in the campaign through Andrew Yang. But what you basically have is a Universal Basic Wealth proposal. And it's gotten a lot less attention. So I'd I'd like to hear you make the case for that and why that should be a a foundational, why we should be focusing on wealth as opposed to just income. Because there are a lot of EITC and UBI ideas out
1: there, but very little focusing on wealth. So I want to first tell you that this is a both sides of the idea already. There were past Republican senators but one that ran for president that brought this issue up. My proposal is just very simple. And, and the reason why I like it better than something like UB, universal basic income is because I actually like progressive things that that, that look at your wealth and, and make a decision. Not everybody getting $12,000 as my dear friend and the guy who I've come to even love more in this campaign, Andrew Yang, but I, I want to look at your family's income. And so we say $1,000 for everybody. If you're born in this country— you get $1,000 in an in a interest-bearing account some, the time you're born, and then every year of your life, you get upwards of $2,000 placed into that account uh, based upon the using the same measures as the earned income tax credit, up to $2,000. So the lowest income kids, I think about one out of five, one out of six are born in poverty. By the time they get to be 18, would have upwards of $50,000 to invest to do something that creates wealth. Paychecks help you get by, Wealth helps you get ahead. And we know those things, buying a home, going to college, things that create generational wealth in America. And so this is radical. Number one, you're right. It closes a racial wealth gap because blacks are disproportionately poor. The average black child would have about 30 plus thousand dollars. The average white child, because again, disparities in wealth, they'd have upwards of $20,000, uh, 15 to 20. This, this is something that would be powerful in leveling a playing field and giving everybody a fair shot. It has implications on college. Our bill got endorsed by the Home Builders Association, realtors Association, because they know that it will be a boom to the housing market. Farming communities love it because that 18-year-old may want to take over the family business, now has capital to invest. It is a game changer in a society that, that claims to be a capitalist system. I think our capitalism and our free market is being distorted by oligarchies. But but it has an incredible effect of giving people real agency over their lives from the time they become an adult at 18 years old. This is something that because it's come from think tanks on the right as well as the left, it's not something this – you know, one of these ideas that the right is going to close ranks behind immediately – uh, especially if, as I think about strategy all the time as president about how we're going to get things done, uh, working with think tanks on the right, building coalitions of people that understand that when you give people that wealth and that agency, and it's, by the way, it's something we can pay for uh, pretty easily by a- adjusting the estate tax back to the wild, wild days of 2009 and closing certain loopholes.
0: And so one of the things that I think is fascinating about this policy is that there was a new study that came out two weeks ago now. And what it showed is that we tend to think about the college premium as being an income generator. And there is still some college premium uh, in income. But in terms of wealth, you know, 50 years ago, if you went to college, you had a huge wealth advantage from that. But now for people who went to college in the 80s, and this is adjusting for age and and, and accumulation, if you went to college in the 80s, the wealth premium for going to college has dropped a lot for white people, and it has become statistically indistinguishable from not going to college for non-white people. And so there's a way in which uh, the way our economy has evolved and uh, the traditional promise of how you build wealth as part of the American dream has broken down for non-white communities. And so it seems to me that wealth deserves a lot more attention in politics than it gets, uh, but it's it somehow is
1: totally obviated by the income discussion. It is an income discussion and it's often the wrong kind of wealth discussion where it seems like, and again, this is Republican filters. They try to make it sound like we're just talking about redistributing wealth or redividing up the pie, which, by the way, I unapologetically believe that we need to have a fairer, more, more progressive tax system on everything from Social Security tax, uh, which is regressive right now, all the way to what we've done on the highest marginal rates. And, or I think we should tax capital gains like ordinary income. I don't understand why you buying a Picasso and your investment returns on that should be less than the money I make sweating or working in a factory or so on and so forth. I think that we, as a party, need to be talking a lot more about wealth creation. Because again, my community, I'm sorry that I use my lived experiences as a lens, if I went into my black church and said, how many people here, we're gonna raise a minimum wage to $15 an hour, how many people here aspire to make minimum wage or for their children? You wouldn't see that many people raise their hands that they aspire to make minimum wage. But if you said how many people here aspire to be wealthy, aspire to be an entrepreneur, um, you would see most of the hands in the church go up. And so we've got to start talking about widening pathways to wealth and opportunity in our country and doing it in a way that captures the imagination. Maybe not of that that person that's middle-aged, you know, I'm 50 now. But for my children, wow, you're speaking to me about how to expand pathways so that my child has a much better life. That's something I think that we used to think of as the American dream. But now it's getting lost where people don't believe their children are going to do better because they see the realities. And I saw a study, and I I, and I know before I ever get an interviews with you, I need to bone up on the exact data that I've looked at. But it was some stunning statistic about the amount of wealth that that. Uh, millennials hold versus the baby boomers, that when the baby boomers were millennials' age, they controlled something like a third of the wealth uh, of where millennials are now. And now millennials, it's down to like 3% of the, of the of the country's wealth. We're just seeing people have harder and harder times. Yesterday, I read out loud in my car, and I'm sorry to switch gears on you, but I just, I just you know, I read uh, uh, Nick Kristoff's column, uh, uh, which I don't know if you've read. It, it's Who Killed... Uh, the Knapp family.
0: Yeah, it's from, and I should say he's got a new book that that's from called Tightrope that is very good
1: and people should check out. Yeah, and and I read the article and it, right before I was going into a uh, a in Iowa into a Quad City uh, editorial board uh, meeting and and it just so affected me that there was like five people in the car and I just read it out loud to them and said this is why we're running for I'm running for president, which is this uh, empathy gap, this severed belonging that we now have in this country, and he made this incredibly—because I, I went to grad school studying William Julius William Julius Wilson, who wrote powerful books like uh, When Work Disappears, and you know, just a lot of thinkers about what's happening to the black community, what's happening to African-American, and there was these, a lot of thought that this was up African-American pathology, uh, it missing completely the, the lack of opportunity and the compounding of institutional racism from generations before. But he wrote very astutely about what you're seeing now, the so-called pathologies uh, of broken families, destructive deaths uh, happening in so many rural white communities, so many white communities in general, And, and to have multiple years in a row, these rises and deaths of despair, so much so that we've had multiple years in a row of our life expectancy going down. And you just see this, folks, whether it's mental health, whether it's drug addiction, our society's response to it compared to he did a, in the column he talked about two towns closely to each other one in Canada one here in America and how their laws this is my words not his where their values permeate their civic spaces. Where ours, our collective values, just as mighty, just as noble, don't permeate our civic spaces where we incarcerate, over-incarcerate the mentally ill, over-incarcerate the addicted, do nothing to make them healthier or better, nothing of restorative justice, put them back into streets. We design our social security, disability insurance, all these things with gaps and holes in it. It just shows you that article. And by the way, I was reading Chris Murphy's book. It hasn't even been released yet, but he's having me read the galleys. And I was stunned because I, I'm—I consider myself sophisticated on gun violence. I didn't know that in rural communities, poor rural communities, the per capita of gun violence is the same as or, or as densely populated urban black and brown uh, uh, urban communities. It, we have this common pain in our country, but but we fail to manifest a sense of common purpose and the div- division, our failure to see each other, how the how the struggles of a contract farmer. In, in, in a rural area is directly connected to the struggles of a person in my community paying more and more f- for their uh, groceries, how, how we are all sort of have a, this common connection intimately, this destiny, this intersectionality, but we don't realize it and we're separated from each other. It, th- this is what I'm what I this is the soul of what I'm talking about the urgency of this moral moment. And if this becomes, if this election isn't about that, the bigger moral issues, the, the connective tissue of our society that's becoming so severed and wounded, if it's not about that healing and instead we Democrat, Democrats try to win, yet again, on what we're against, we're against Republicans uh, and not what we're for, we're for these values, uh, for these ideals. And I know that that's not simplistic and it's not binary because there are people who are both, I'm, I want to beat Donald Trump. But I, I, that's not my end. My end is not beating Republicans. My end is uniting Americans in common cause to get things done. And that article so touched me because it, it could be a policy resuscitation. I could tell you all the policy implications in there. But it's more about we are – the the moral hurt – The the wounds, that that severedness uh, uh, that's in this country is only getting deeper, and it's like a cancer. It's spreading and affecting more and more communities, and we don't realize that the cure for urban, suburban, rural America is the same cure, and it has to start with the leader's ability to do like the heroes of my life that I look back in history on who could ignite that understanding, that more courageous love. Uh, uh, in this society to help us understand that your destiny is interwoven with mine and we need to join forces in changing it and working against those people. Back then it was Bull Connor and others who are, who are doing everything they can through greed or bigotry uh, or just malign neglect to stop us from making change. And the last point is what, what I think is so important about our, our people from history. It doesn't get accomplished. It, one of my favorite moments of my recent life was going to see Jimmy Carter in Plains, Georgia, in the in the, in the the weeks or months before I was going to declare my presidency to have a, a conversation with him and drove all the way down, drove over. And I'll never forget what he touched me. He like poked at my chest and he said, he told me, he preempted my questions to him. He goes, you need to run for president, but make sure you always run from, make sure you run from here. And he poked to my heart. It was a very moving moment for me as a guy who talked after Nixon about dignity and these issues. Let's not talk about his presidency. His campaign was won based on morals. The head of the New Hampshire Democratic Party told me Carter came in here and won because he talked about human decency, dignity, our connections to one another. But the more powerful part for me, besides that moment, was that in the car ride from Atlanta to uh, Plains, Georgia and back, the person I had in the car with me is named John Lewis. And the stories he shared with me of love of, of how change was made, how he – with Jews and and Christians, black and white, all the things that people did when, when they got more people off the couch, more people uncomfortable, more people disturbed, more people in the fight. But my favorite story of them all was the guy that beat him viciously. You remember he's considered one of the bravest people because Freedom Rides, sit-ins, Edmund Pettusbridge beaten. He just told me about that guy that came to him with his – I'm pretty sure it was his grandchild. That asked for his forgiveness came to his congressional office, asked for his forgiveness, and and John Lewis talked about weeping with him, hugging him, forgiving him, and seeing that the redemption of our of the soul of our nation in that moment, and and so I always joke that I'm you can tell I'm a fighter. There's a movie made about me called Street Fight. I've shown that from the Kavanaugh hearings to standing on the floor fighting everybody from Jeff Sessions to Betsy DeVos, but. Uh, Ultimately, the deeper issue is not how much we can beat each other down, but how much we can begin people who are marginalized, people who are forgotten from all backgrounds, how much we can lift each other up, own up to racism, sexism, own up, not sweeping those things under the rug, but keeping it creating a deeper love in our society That recognizes that pain. The only way to deal with past trauma is by addressing it. But ultimately, the goal for all of us is to understand there is a oneness in this nation that we have to put more indivisible into this one nation under God. If we fail in that, the consequences of failure in the next 10 years are cataclysmic because if we fail, we will not be able to muster the unity it's going to take to deal with planetary peril not to mention uh, d- declining other indices in our country, like life expectancy going down. There's so much at stake. And and, and whether I win or lose, I, I pray to God uh, that I've been an instrument of someone trying to call this country again to those ideals, uh, like, like people like John Lewis have lived in ways greater than I ever will, those ideals of love.
0: I think that is a good place to end. Senator Cory Booker, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you to Senator Cory Booker for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, as always, my email is show at Box.com. I'd be very interested for your feedback on this episode. Um, and as I mentioned before, Wire Polarized coming out in a couple weeks. A lot of cool things are going to happen on the podcast around it. So, you're going to want to have a copy, or I hope you're going to want to have a copy. But also, if you want to join on tour, that is selling out fast. um Three of the announced uh, events are sold out already, and a bunch of them are closed. So, please, if it's something you want to do, go check out our tour dates at wirepolarized.com uh, and grab a spot. I'd love to see people from the podcast there. Thank you to Rishay Karma for researching, to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. This are client Joseph Fox Media Podcast Production.